Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan and before I get cracking with the proper episode, I just wanted to pop a little disclaimer in that it is Mark's birthday this week, which is why you're having this episode. And this is an episode that was recorded ooh, a few months ago, ready for this specific occasion. So the sponsors are going to sound a little bit different to normal and I'll pop them in and I'll try and do it as seamlessly as possible, but it's never perfect is it when when you're doing things at different times and you record at different places so just a little warning for you all that it might sound a little bit different but the actual case is fascinating and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this episode so thanks for joining us we will do all of our patreon thank yous when we're back together myself and Mark in a couple of weeks time and until then let's crack on with the episode enjoy Welcome to CM Red, a true crime podcast. This week's episode has been pre-recorded and I'm recording it with my friend Lisa, who you may remember. Hi, Lisa. Hello. Hello. You may remember Lisa from back in April in the middle, I think it was around the middle of season seven. She did a little guest episode then as well. So we've got her back for this weekend because it's Mark's birthday. So we'll give him a little bit of a break. We're recording it a little bit early. So um, I'm not 100% sure if we've got any sponsors that we'll be adding in halfway through. Um, and also we're not going to be able to do any Patreon thank yous because I can't see the future, but thank you very much to all of our Patreon supporters and anybody who's joined up recently. This week's episode has been researched and written by Hayes over at Podcast She Wrote. So thank you so much, Hayes LBD, for this wonderful script and for your time on the case. It's a case that I know nothing about, so both me and Lisa are going to have a great time learning about this as we go, which will be really fun. And before we get started, I just also wanted to say, please do join us over on social media. So join us in all the usual places. So Instagram, Facebook, and also please come and say happy birthday to Mark um, for his birthday. So let's crack on with this, Lisa. Welcome back to the show again. Why, thank you. It's lovely to be back. Did you enjoy your first time on the show before? I did, although, you know, it's very nerve-wracking, but (laughs) to be honest, the nerves still haven't left me, so let's hope this this episode is just as fun as the last one. I think it will be. This is, um, it seems like a kind of episode, it should have been around at Halloween, because it seems a little bit spooky, which I think is quite fun. Well now, who doesn't love a spooky cry? Exactly. So, Hayes has entitled this episode, The Body Under the Bed. Straight away, that grips you, doesn't it? I like that. Already, already there. Some true crime stories sound so much like urban legends, you feel compelled to validate whether they are actually true crime. Most urban legends begin with some basis in truth, but over time get retold and embellished so often that eventually the legend bears little resemblance to the actual event. For example, do you know the origin of the bunny man legend? So the story goes along the lines of, an escapee from a mental asylum in Fairfax County, Virginia, began killing and hanging rabbits from the local railway bridge. But then children started going missing too, and soon they began appearing, slaughtered and hanging from the bridge too. 
A strange figure dressed in tattered rabbit costume, complete with bunny ears, was seen by the bridge at the time of each disappearance, brandishing a hatchet. That is chilling and creepy, isn't it? I don't like that. No, the the bunny costume really really adds to the chilling factor, mm-hmm. doesn't it? So it's meant to be lovely and sweet, but it's killing you. Yeah. But the slightly less interesting origin was that in about 1970, a couple were parked near the bridge in question. A stranger approached and shouted something about trespassing. When the couple didn't respond or move the car, the stranger threw a hatchet at them. And the description that they gave to the police was that he was wearing light or light-coloured clothes and may or may not have had something on his head. As the incident was then discussed around town, it gradually morphed into something (laughs) resembling the incident with this legendary bunny man. Yeah. Well, can I just say already, even the real version's a slight overreaction to throw a hatchet at somebody who didn't move their car, but you know... (laughs) I know, like, that's okay, <laughs> right. Pokey pokey, I'll just move then. <laughs> exactly. Do you know what, though? When you talk about, like, urban legends and stuff, do you know this story of Daniel LaPlante? No. Have you heard of this? So I was going to cover this on the show, and then I started researching, and I just couldn't cover it because it's too upsetting. But the the story is really interesting. So if you're listening mm. to this and you haven't heard of him either, you need to go and research this in a lot more detail, but be prepared. So basically, it was really horrible because... He killed a woman and then her two children. And the bit that I just couldn't cope with was then the dad came home and found them. And I was just like, oh, this is too much. And it was really, really brutal. It's horrible. But then there's this urban legend that he was actually living inside the walls of their home because the children were mentioning that they could hear things a lot and they could hear someone walking around. I have heard of this. It's crazy. Nobody knows for sure how far the case actually goes. Is it all true? Because the fact that he murdered them is is definite Mm. and he's in prison, but he hasn't admitted to the other things. But then even if he did, would it just because he's trying to be sensationalizing things or was he really there living in the walls, tormenting them for months or not? Who knows? So it kind of reminds me of that. Yeah. So was it known that the kids definitely were hearing stuff before? They've they've been been reporting about it. Oh, well then, Mm. yeah, then that makes sense. But then were they making up? stuff or not and oh. were they just being children it's a bit of a coincidence for kids to be like mm-hmm. i can hear something in the walls yeah that in itself is creepy when children say anything like that it's creepy <laughs> i know i mean if my children say that i'm gonna be really don't you dare start telling bella to say stuff like that to me because that will <laughs> freak ma- me out can you imagine like tell mommy you hear things yeah, in the walls evie's there like mommy i was like no <laughs> stop 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 but yeah like i think this the whole thing of like urban legends is so fascinating isn't it I, I love hearing how they've how they grow and develop. So mm-hmm. let's let's carry on. So there's another one, the oh. legend of Charlie No Face. This legend began in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where a severely disfigured man was said to haunt abandoned train tunnels and interfere with electricity. Any reports of missing children were attributed to Charlie, and teenagers would dare each other to enter dark tunnels in search of the child killer. But in reality, Charlie was a man by the name of Raymond Robinson who had been disfigured in an electrical accident. Self-conscious about his facial scars, Robinson would stay indoors during the day and only go out at night. And actually, far from abducting children and teenagers, he would offer to have his photo taken with them in return for cigarettes. So this poor guy's become this Charlie No face. (laughs) It's crazy, isn't it? How a bit of an interesting story, which isn't that interesting, but it's reasonably interesting, turns into... A child killer haunting tunnels. Yeah, good good stretch. 
The video game Polybius was said to have had limited release in Portland, Oregon in 1981 and was designed by the government as a psychological experiment. It would cause seizures in the players and government agents could extract information about the players from arcade machines. It is likely that this legend originated around another video game released in 1981 called Tempest, which did cause some players to experience motion sickness. And a government conspiracy maybe is less embarrassing than admitting that you played a video game and it made you a bit sick. Yeah, can you imagine that? Like, oh no, I feel poorly. It's it's so much more interesting to be like, they're out to get us then. I had a funny tummy. Another trope of this genre is the often told story of the honeymooning couple who notice a strange smell in their hotel room, which turns out to be a body under the bed. And actually, there are several real-life examples of this, which could explain the inconsistencies in the telling. So where the hotel was, the sex of the deceased, and how long before the body was discovered, and so on. And as the fact-checking website Snopes states, especially when dealing with a half-remembered true story, it's natural for the obvious details to replace facts that have been misplaced due to ordinary fuzziness of memory. One, after all, does not let a lack of certainty stand in the way of a good story. I don't know about you, but I know that I've got some memories that I've totally exaggerated in my memory. So one of them was, I was like three and... In my memory of this, someone rolled a tyre, like a massive tractor tyre, down a hill at me, and I only just escaped, like, Indiana Jones style, jumped to the side, because I didn't see it coming. And then my dad made me go to the opticians and get my eyes checked, because I didn't see this thing coming down the hill at me. And then I said to my dad, like, where was I that there was a tractor tyre, and what was going on? And it turned out that... You know, like when you bury a tire in the ground Mm. for children to play on? There was one of those at my nursery and my dad had made a jokey comment about like, you need to get your eyes tested. You wouldn't see something coming straight at you. Like something like that. And I'd then made it into this story that that's why he took me to get my eyes tested because the tire had been rolled down a hill at me. But that's... But it wasn't. But that's completely normal. So Mm. there is three types of memory and I'm not going to go into it because I am not this type of person who retains information this way. There is memories you've made up and memories that are actual facts and just the other one. But... What you actually, when you remember a memory, mm-hmm. you only remember it from the last time you remembered yes, it. So I know you're, you can, yeah. so the last time you remember, if that wasn't factually correct, then you're going to keep remembering mm-hmm. only the last time you, yeah. It's mental, isn't it? And How if you, we, you might have experienced something and then the next time you remember it, you smell something at the same time as remembering, mm-hmm. you might then start to remember that the smell was in yeah. the original memory, but it wasn't. Yeah. And smell mm-hmm. is actually the most powerful form of triggering yeah. for humans for memories. Yeah. So yeah. It's so weird, isn't it? Yeah, love this. I love things like that. And I love the idea as well that, um, you know, like if you get so drunk that you don't remember something, Mm. you'll never remember those memories because drunk mind and memory storing is completely different to sober. So if you don't remember something from that, unless you got really drunk again, you wouldn't ever remember it. Which is quite weird as well. Honest, that's also probably a good thing. I'm not saying that's yeah. a bad thing. Yeah. yeah. How did I, how did I end up in this bush? Nobody needs to know. No. <laughs> Nobody needs to. I remember. made it back home. Exactly. There um, we go. Yeah. Let's just not talk about it anymore. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. It's, it is fascinating, isn't it? And I think as well the collective thing of people talking about these urban legends. Everybody's got different facts mm. that they put in, and then they tell someone else something slightly different. So before we continue with this episode then, we will hear from this week's show sponsors. 
So this is the, sadly, very true story of Sunny Annette Milbrook, an aspiring nurse and mother of five children whose young life was cut short by her abusive partner. Her story should be told with compassion for a life lost, not as merely a gruesome urban legend comprising of amalgamation of half-truths. Sunny Annette Milbrook was born on February the 10th, 1981 in Memphis, Tennessee, to Mother Christina, and close friends knew her by her middle name, but... Hayes has put in her script that she will refer to her by her given name, which is Sunny. There are scarce details other family members or about her family members or her early childhood, but we do know that Sunny had her first child aged just 14. Her boyfriend did not want the responsibility of fatherhood and the young couple drifted apart. But with the support of her family, Sunny was said to be a wonderful mother who doted on her baby daughter and wanted to give her the best life she could offer. In 1998, when Sunny was 18 and her daughter was four, Sunny started dating 24-year-old Lakeith Moody. Initially concerned about how Moody would react to her daughter, she was relieved to find that Moody loved being a father figure. Their relationship soon became serious, and by the age of 19, Sunny was pregnant with their first child. Outwardly, they seemed like the perfect couple, but as we all know far too well, the perfect couple are rarely that behind closed doors, and the facade soon slips. Before long, their relationship became extremely volatile and the police were called on numerous occasions for domestic disturbances between the couple. Pamela Payton, a close friend of Sonny's since 8th grade, recalled meeting Moody shortly after his relationship with Annette became public. It was the following year, 1999, that she noticed bruises and scratches appearing on her friend's body and initially Sonny shrugged these off as minor accidents until Pamela witnessed Moody slap his girlfriend across the face and throw a drink over her whilst they were drinking at the Mirage, a local bar. You're going to be worried as a friend, aren't you, if you see this happening? Because, like, if, you know, usually abusers sort of take the whole behind closed doors mm-hmm. thing so if he's been as brazen to do it in public you've got to imagine what he's also then doing behind closed doors exactly. as well on the night of halloween in the year 2000 sunny was admitted to methodist central hospital with bruises on her chest and arms and a loose tooth sunny explained to sergeant eric jensen of the memphis police department the media had punched her in the face and chest kicked her in the lower back and had choked her unconscious and Pamela visited her friend in the emergency room at the hospital and said that Sunny was crying and kind of nervous and scared. Pamela further recalled that it was not long after this incident that Moody discovered birth control pills in Sunny's apartment and beat her so severely that she called her friend to say that she thought she was having a miscarriage and she needed a lift to the hospital immediately. Sonny tried to leave Moody on several occasions, but he always convinced her to return, using the all-too-familiar excuses that he was sorry, it wouldn't happen again, she needed him, and that the children needed their father. I mean, that always makes me so mm. pissed off when the abuser uses things like that against them, because you're not even yeah. just thinking about yourself, then you're trying to think about these children as well. You know, she's, she's a very young mum. Mm-hmm. Well, the, well, she was very young at the beginning, and she still is quite young now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, three children. I'm assuming she's still under 25. Well, she's got two at the moment. Oh, and sorry. then, like, as the abuse continued, she had three more children with him. Oh. So, yeah, like, she's ends up with five children. That's a lot to think about when you're trying to flee an abuser. That's too many. Sorry. <laughs> <Is> that just... <laughs> That's too many. <laughs> just too many children? What, five? In general. Okay. Just too many. But, well, yeah... That's a lot of kids. That is a lot of children. Especially, as you said, if you're trying to flee a horrible, dangerous situation. This is really... And 
the great thing is, is like if any of our listeners are, are listening and potentially they may be in a situation like that, places like the Women's Refuge or the police will help you. You can walk out of the home with nothing and you will get support. But it's ter- it must be absolutely terrifying because you don't have an income or mm-hmm. potentially don't have any savings or you potentially wouldn't be able to take any clothes with you. And then you've got the your abuser who's constantly probably regaling you with information how mm-hmm. it will be better this this will be the last time yeah and then you it's all it's you, you're leaving your home your your life your comfort mm-hmm. is you don't want to leave that. yeah exactly and when it's good it's good when it's horrific you're thinking i should leave but then but it also it's good again and but it was also probably my fault anyway exactly. i forgot to pick up the toys it he'll was, make it, her feel yeah. like that exactly it's so sad isn't it this is horrible And this abuse did continue then for several more years. On October the 6th, 2008, officers Stacey Faulkner and Irvin Ramcharan of the Memphis Police Department were dispatched to a domestic disturbance after Sonny sent a text message to her employer, Leslie Young, at the Healing Hands Christian Academy, explaining that she couldn't come to work because she was being held hostage by her boyfriend. I mean, that's like pretty open and like blatant to say that to other Mm. people as well. That's You're not even trying to hide this. Oh, I don't. How do you even go about that as well? You're like, yeah, yeah. And Leslie had seen her employee with unexplained injuries at work and was already concerned for her welfare. Sunny had once confided that she couldn't come to work because her face was messed up and she didn't want the very young children that she worked with to see her that way. And when Sunny returned to work after a couple of days, Ms. Young had allowed her to wear dark glasses to hide her still bruised eyes. So with this in mind, Leslie was in no doubt whatsoever that Sunny's text message was genuine and she was in danger. When the officers arrived at the address, no one answered their knocks at the door, so the fire department was called in in order to gain access. Once the police were able to enter, they saw a battered and bruised Sunny gesturing to an open window, surrounded by her terrified small children. Moody had escaped. Sunny explained that they'd got into an argument and Moody would not let her leave the house. The area was searched, but officers were unable to locate him. Sunny was offered a ride to anywhere within the city limits away from Moody. But petrified of what he would do if he found out, and not wanting to upset the children even further, she signed a domestic violence hold harmless form. So this document essentially protected police from any repercussions if anything should happen to Sunny, as it showed they had offered to escort her to a safe house, but she had declined. I mean, that is just so sad, isn't it? That that even exists, that they can do that. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But there isn't a situation, what can you do? You can't forcibly remove a mother and children from a family home that they are saying, no, I'm staying in. Exactly, exactly. There's nothing really they can do. They've offered as much as they can. And three days later, however... On October 9th, 2008, Sunny did contact the Order of Protection Department at the local crime victim centre to formally request an order against her partner and cited their recent altercation and said she was in fear for her life. Five months later, on the 10th of March 2009, officers Gregory Robinson and James Fort of the Memphis Police Department were dispatched in reference to another domestic disturbance regarding Sunny Milbrook and the Keith Moody. Separated by this point, but with joint custody of the children, Moody was due to take the kids for a doctor's appointment. But upon arriving at Sunny's house, he accused her of having a new boyfriend, slapped her across the face and pulled her hair. Sunny ran outside, but Moody followed her, holding their youngest baby. And seeing the arrival of the police, Moody snarled, I'm going to kill you, before getting in his car and driving away at speed. 
After a turbulent few months, the couple were reunited once again, and by January 2010, Moody, Sonny, and the five children were residing at the Budget Lodge Hotel on Brooks Road, Memphis. It was an area with a high crime rate, but it was all they could afford at this time. Sonny's fifth child was born with disabilities, and after seeing the incredible treatment he received from the local hospital, Sonny was inspired to retrain as a nurse and was going to school in addition to working and looking after her children. So money was really tight. Moody was unable to provide a regular income, so he turned to petty crime to pay the hotel fees. I mean, that doesn't even surprise me. He seems like an absolute wanker. Yeah, just waste of space. Yeah, what a prick. There had been several complaints from other guests and residents about the raised voices in room 222, and hotel staff had reprimanded the couple on several occasions. Nathaniel Lewis was employed as the housekeeping manager of the Budget Lodge at this time. On January the 27th, 2010, Mr. Lewis knocked on the door of room 222 to offer the family the ultimatum of paying the hotel bill or checking out. The door was not answered, so Nathaniel spoke to Sonny through the window. He could not ascertain whether there was anyone else in the room at the time. Returning several times later that day, Nathaniel eventually spoke to Moody through the window. The door still wasn't being answered, and he was told the bill would be settled by the end of that day. Meanwhile, Sonny's mother, Christina, was starting to worry. She had received a call to say that her grandchildren had not been picked up from daycare and that their mother was not answering her phone. Christina desperately tried to get hold of her daughter before picking up the young children and taking them home with her. Christina's fear was exacerbated further when she heard that Sonny had not attended an appointment regarding her claim for disability support for her son. So she reported Sonny Milbrook as a missing person and immediately informed the police that they should be looking at her daughter's partner as their potential suspect. Good mum. Like, I'm glad that she's, like, gone straight for, like... That must Look be at him. so hard, though. Like mm-hmm. you have to pick up five children, which, like we've already discussed, is not a small amount. That's of children. too many, apparently. That's too many children. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're also concerned for your actual mm-hmm. child, and you're trying to probably be chipper and upbeat to not then scare the children who yep. probably have to witness all sorts of horrible things. So yeah, fair play, well done, mum. So the following day, Mr. Lewis was informed that no payment for room two 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 had been forthcoming. So he entered with the master key. And it looked as though the family had left in a hurry. The room was in disarray and there were clothes and toys strewn everywhere. Relieved to be rid of the problematic guests, Budget Lodge housekeeping staff... Relieved to be rid of the problematic guests, Budget Lodge housekeeping staff set about bagging up everything that was left and placing it in storage before cleaning the room thoroughly, ready for the next guests. At some point, the police arrived at the Budget Lodge and inquired about a potential missing person. This was her last known address listed. They were informed by hotel staff that Sonny, Moody and the children had left without settling their bill and the room had since been cleaned. Upon hearing this, they left the premises and at no point did they ask access to this potential crime scene. That's really frustrating. I just remembered the episode's title. You just remembered, yeah. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Yeah, it's it's freaking me out, isn't it, already? I've got a feeling. Mm -hmm. After a week with no activity from Sonny's cell phone or bank card, the case was handed over from the missing persons department to Homicide Division. And officers then tracked down Moody, who was still driving Sonny's car, which had been reported as missing. So clearly a person of interest, Moody was arrested on an unrelated charge of violating his probation by being a felon in possession of a weapon so that he could be held whilst further checks were carried out on his recent movements. As the investigation continued, life at the Budget Lodge moved on and guests came and went. Room 222 had been occupied by four sets of guests and re-cleaned after each checkout. 
There were complaints about an unpleasant smell in the room, but hotel staff just added extra air freshness to the room to mask the stench rather than trying to find the source. Oh my God, that's horrendous. Also, fair play, because... You know, what's it they say? Minimum wage, minimum effort. Exactly. <laughs> Definitely. That this is, not, is literally minimum. That is that is not a wage that involves finding bodies. It also worries <laughs> me that this has been cleaned. Like, this has not been cleaned. Like Not to that stand. Not, like, no. what? <sighs> By March 2010, so this was in January she went missing. In March 2010, the room was being rented by James and Rhonda Sargent, who complained that their room smelt, in quote, stanky and foul, Despite the ongoing investigation and further visits from officers to the budget lodge to talk to staff, room 222 remained unchecked. And Rhonda said, we were the occupants of that room. If police detectives asked us to come in, we'd have let them. Surely they know what a body smells like. We didn't. They would have been able to find her so much sooner than when they did. Yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say. Finally, on the 15th of March, 47 days after the missing persons report had been filed, the source of the smell had been located and Sonny Annette Milbrook had finally been found, lodged into the bed frame in room 222. The pieces were eventually put together, but not before a couple of false leads had taken the police down a very different path. When fingerprints were taken from beneath the bed frame, it was assumed that they would belong to Lakeith Moody, so police were shocked when they led to another suspect, Anderson Frederick. Oh, Anderson Frederick. I was not expecting this at all. Frederick was previously employed by Budget Lodge, but had left abruptly. He was traced to homeless shelter where he now resided, and he confirmed that he had worked at the hotel and his fingerprints were on the bed for a very good reason. He'd put the bed together. So with a solid alibi for the night of Sonny's murder, attention turned to Jackson Crosby. Jackson Crosby was also a tenant of room 222 and had been aware of the smell, but consistently refused to let a maid clean the room Instead, he would leave the windows open and use air freshener, which seemed like really suspicious behaviour. Like, yeah, that's weird. But upon questioning, Cosby insisted that he had previously had small items that were personal items stolen from his hotel rooms, so therefore he always refused maid service, despite the smell. So Hazer said that she can only assume that his items must have been really valuable, because this turned out to be true as well. Oh my god, I was totally thinking, like, surely it wasn't anybody apart from Moody. I was like, no, she's she's taken us somewhere else now. (laughs) So what really happened? On or around the 27th of January, after dropping their children at daycare, Moody had returned to room 222 where the couple had another argument. Moody was seeing someone else by this point. Of course, he gets even worse and worse, doesn't he? I mean, I'm not shocked, but... We're not not surprised, but also, like, what gives you the right to retain somebody Mm -hmm. and see somebody else? Yeah, exactly. Just no. Mm Mm-hmm. And Sonny may have found out and confronted him, potentially. Whatever transpired did not justify Moody's actions, because he tied an electrical cord around Sonny's neck and strangled her until she was dead. He then removed the box spring from the king-size bed and threw her body inside, before replacing the mattress and remaking the bed. Oh, so it wasn't like under the... I was thinking under the bed as in, like, you know when you just, like, look under the bed and there might be some, like, dust under there and a bit of, like, an odd shoe or something? I thought they meant, like, under the bed on the mattress, but... Are we on no. about, like, a duvet sort of I'm situation? guessing it must have been, like, he literally took the duvet out and, like, took some of the springs out and put her that way. No, like, in the mattress. I'm confused now. So he removed the box spring from the king-size bed and then replaced the mattress, which sounds like it's, like, some of the springs. Like, I don't understand how American beds are, but 
I was definitely thinking these cleaners just haven't hoovered under the bed. Yeah. But no, it's like within, her body was within the bed. Oh, oh my God, people that's were lying awful. on it. People were lying on it. Oh, my God, that's horrendous. Okay. So Sunny was found partially clothed, but there was no indication of sexual assault, and the cause of death was determined to be asphyxiation by ligature strangulation. Sunny had suffered the most horrendous domestic abuse at the hands of her partner for several years before he eventually took her life, and Sunny Annette Mulbrook was just 28 years old when she died. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, NCADV, worked tirelessly advocating for victims of abuse such as this, and their mission statement is a powerful one. We envision a national culture in which we are all safe, empowered and free from domestic violence. Our mission is to lead, mobilise and raise our voices to support efforts that demand a change in conditions that lead to domestic violence, such as patriarchy, privilege, racism, sexism and classism. We are dedicated to supporting survivors and holding offenders accountable and supporting advocates. And the NCADV Facebook page has a hashtag Memorial Monday feature where friends and family can remember a loved one lost to domestic abuse. Sunny Annette Milbrook's memorial reads, Affectionately known by her middle name, Annette was known for being exceedingly smart and was an aspiring nurse. As a mother of five, she wanted a better life for her children and began college with the odds stacked against her. She was dedicated to her job and loved taking care of children and seeing the best in all people. She is deeply missed by her family and friends who wish they were able to see her reach her full potential and her five children simply miss being hugged by their mother. God, it's just heartbreaking, isn't it, to read what someone's written like that as like a memorial for her? Yeah, it's it's awful, like mm. the, kid, the poor kids. Yeah. And Lakeith Moody, aged 34, was convicted of first degree premeditated murder and felony murder and was sentenced to life in prison. The four youngest children, Cleopatra, Christian, Lakeith and Colby, are being lovingly raised by family members Linda and Kermit James. And the oldest child is thriving with a family of her own. So those children have now finally got a loving homes, which Aww. is something. That is something. Can you imagine they've been brought up in that environment, mm-hmm. knowing not knowing what is normal yeah, or normal love sort of thing? It kind of makes me feel a bit sad. Obviously, the oldest child wasn't um, like Moody's child. It wasn't the Keith Moody's no. child. So it makes sense that the four youngest children are all together. But it kind of makes me feel really sad that she's that older child isn't with the rest of her yeah. siblings, even though they would have been half siblings. They're still siblings in my yeah. mind. But I'd be interested to know what family of her own she is thriving with. Yeah. It might be the actual... The dad's family, yeah, relatives also, that way. It would be nice for her to also... Yeah, to know, be with her dad's side of things, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Unfortunately, Sunny was found and Moody was held to account. Sadly, there are countless other examples of cases that have contributed to the body under the bed legend, and not all are solved, leaving many questions unanswered. These include 64-year-old Saul Hernandez's decomposing corpse was found in the bed frame of room 112 of the Burgundy Motor Inn in Atlantic City, New Jersey, on the 10th of June 1999. A German couple had spent the night sleeping over Hernandez's remains, which were only discovered when they complained to management about the foul smell in the room. Another unfortunate German tourist complained about the smell in his room at the Travellers Hotel near Miami International Airport while staring there in March 1994, only to discover that the source was the body of 24-year-old Josefina Martinez. And it took 10 days of guests complaining about a bad odour for the staff at the Colorado Boulevard Travel Lodge in Pasadena, California, to find a woman's body under the mattress in one of the rooms in July 1996. 
at least two guests at the Oceanside Motel in New York unknowingly slept above the remains of 29-year-old Mary Jean de Oliveira in 1998, and the body was only discovered after a guest refused to stay in the room because of the foul smell, and an unnamed man died of a drug overdose in a hotel room in Rosedale, Maryland in 1997, when one of the 34 balloons of heroin he had swallowed burst. Rather than report the death by misadventure, his partner hid the body under the bed and fled, and the next guest to rent the room three days later complained about the smell and the corpse was discovered. So what I'm getting from this is, is that hotel staff really need to believe people when they don't like the smell of something. Definitely. Like, yeah, just have a, have a, just breathe in. Just, just don't. If it smells that did, bad, did one check? You know, did two people check in and only one person check out? Yeah, is that it, might be a thing. Maths. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, there's another one. Jerry Lee Dunbar clearly thought this was a good method of body disposal, but disposal because he left two bodies discarded beneath hotel beds in Virginia in 1989. The first was 27 year old Deirdre Smith, who was discovered in May under the floor of a motel room on Route One. He kept Deirdre beneath his bed for two weeks before moving her to the cool space under the floor. Dunbar remained in the room for at least three weeks after that before he checked out. And the next month, 29-year-old Marilyn Graham's body was found under a bed in the Alexandra Econo Lodge when, yes, you guessed it, there were complaints about a foul smell. Jerry Lee Dunbar had been the last guest to stay in that room. Next time you stay in a hotel, will you be checking under the bed? Yes. If I smell even, like, just a normal smell, I'm going to be like, why is there air freshener in this room? So, divans, 100%. Hopefully Mm -hmm. every bed is of a normal wooden frame, which I'm used to. (sighs) That's a lot of bodies under beds. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. In hotels. Yeah. And also, um, this is going back quite a while, but I don't know if you remember the Iceman, Richard Kuklinski episode that I did... Um, gosh, this is going back quite a while. I think that was like back in February or March, but they'd stuffed a bed into the, into a motel room in the, in the hotel. And it was only again when the smell came about. It's just, it's not great. It shouldn't be so common. No. Um, which one of the guests stayed in the hotel room for three weeks afterwards? Because Jerry Lee Dunbar. Mm. So he kind of had the right idea. He waited out the worst of the bad smell. Not that I should be encouraging good, <laughs> yeah. good murder. Yeah. But, you know. But then you're also going to be the last guest to have stayed there and the smell's there when other people go in. Yeah. I don't think the smell's going to ever get better, no, is that, at least. <laughs> no. To be honest, that's smart and dumb at the same yeah. time. I mean, no one else is coming in, so they're not going to smell it. But you have to then sleep there. Well, yeah, you know, th- th- oh, just the thought of a body underneath you. That's it's so disgusting, yeah, isn't it? I feel like my skin feels itchy. Mm, well, I feel itchy. Happy birthday, Mark. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice little episode for you. Ta-da. Ta-da. So thank you so much, Hayes, for this episode. It's been wonderful to read and to hear about and for you to have researched for us. So thank you very, very much. Do check out her podcast. So podcast she wrote. Please do go and check her out. Thank you, Lisa, for being my co-host again. Lovely to work with you again. Thank you for having me back. Thank you very much. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week. Although it is my birthday, so we'll see what Mark's got planned to maybe let me have a little week off for my birthday. We'll see what he does. And we'll be out celebrating. We will. We'll go do something, definitely. Party time. Party time. <laughs> 
Hmm. Um, yes, no, we definitely will. I love that. And yeah, um, we'll be back with you next week. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye.